0: Let's grab a seat. John chapter 15, verse 17 is where we'll start tonight. John 15, 17. If you're new to Crossroad, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going through the book of John. John chapter 15, verse 17. Tonight we will do all of one verse. We're slowing down. I know that makes you say, what? You know, if you're new, sometimes we do like three verses. You know, those are crazy weeks, you know. Tonight, one, One verse. John 15, 17. Uh, many of you may have been here a couple of weeks ago, last crosser we had, and know that my wife and I took a vacation to go to the beach last week, Labor Day and, and the week of. And uh, we go to South Carolina, down near Charleston, to a place called Fripp Island. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not, but we left after church and. Uh, I had to preach Sunday morning, so I, I, I did my stuff and then like ran out the door and jumped in the car and drove off for anybody who could start asking me questions and I had uh, darts with me so I could throw them at them as i ran and uh, So I go and we get in the car, I go to the house, and I change clothes, and I get ready, and we get in the car, and we take off for charleston and and we 're driving along and we 're talking about you know all kinds of different stuff that 's going on in our lives and, and just talking and blabbing the app and when I drive long distances. I go to Cracker Barrel and get books on tape. You ever done that? Who does that? Who's with me? Cracker Barrel books on tape? Because the rest of y'all are losers. Um, But if you ever got to drive like a long way, and I don't mean like two hours, I mean like ten hours, you you got to drive a long way, there's nothing that beats a good book on tape because you get all wrapped up in it and then it's over and it's been eight hours and you're like, rock, you know, and so it's a really good way for me to stay awake, because I love listening to stories, I love listening to you know, narratives and that kind of stuff, and books on tape are perfect for me, so we're cruising along, and the way you go to Charleston, I don't know if you've ever been there, you go to I-40 toward Asheville, not Nashville, Asheville, you take off toward Asheville, and then you get on I-26, and you go down to Columbia, which is where, you know, South Carolina, University of Carolina, and then you go down from Columbia, and you, you take off down toward Charleston, and then there's, there's the beach. Well, so we're driving along, and, uh, We've been talking, and so finally, you know, we go across Tennessee state line, we're in North Carolina, and I say, Jen finally says, okay, I'm going I'm to go lay in the back seat because Jen has car narcolepsy, and as soon as we get ready to get into, it, as soon as we get in the car to drive anywhere, it's like, if we're going to the grocery store, she's fine. If we're going to a friend's house, she's fine. If we're going 10 hours away, when we drive out of the driveway, she goes, so anyways, I was, and is out, like, out, and so... She is just like, she's been up for like an hour and a half. This is, this is almost, almost the Immaculate Conception. That's the level of miracle we're talking about, that she's been up for an hour and a half. And so she finally says, well, I'm going to get in the back seat because that's, you know, she's going to climb over and go to sleep and that's about it. Sometimes she falls asleep when she makes it all in the back seat and then, you know, this is a bad scene. I got to push her back all the way back in there. My favorite thing to do is while she's sleeping is do the break and scream. You know what I'm talking about? And she's out cold and I'm like, oh my God, you know, she finally got over that, and you know, she grabs the seatbelt and chokes me. So we're cruising along, and and uh, I think she's dead asleep because normally, you know, that's that's part for the course. And and uh, out of nowhere comes, you know, my wife's voice: "Hey, I, I gotta, I gotta go to the restroom if if uh, you see an exit." Generally, that means she really has to go to the restroom within an hour because I'm not stopping, you know, at any re- at any rest stop because being male, you know, I have a bladder the size of me, and so. You know, being female, she has a negative bladder. She owes bladder to the bladder bank. And uh, so we're cruising along, and she says, I got to go to the restroom. And I say, yeah, okay. And, uh, and right then I look up, and, and uh, like, we've gone through Asheville. We're, we're cruising along, and I'm thinking, Columbia's got to be getting close. Maybe we can get to Columbia. The next sign I said says, Hickory, 20 miles. And I'm like, Hickory? I don't remember Hickory. Yeah, that's Hickory, North Carolina because I've been listening to my book on tape and just cruised right through Asheville. And I ain't not even kind of look at I-26. I was just cruising down I-40. I was headed toward the Atlantic, you know, somewhere around Raleigh, Durham. I'm just like, what's going on? Where am I? And I mean, I just blew past this thing. And so, you know, I I pull off to the, I get off the the interstate and start screaming because I'm so mad because I'm like, well, like you're supposed to go like this, just kind of a straight diagonal line. And we had like gone like this. And now i got to go all the way down, you know, straight line. But it let me listen to the whole book. So that was good news. So the rest of the week, like any time anything dumb would happen or I would just say something stupid, Jen would go, hey, are we going back home through Charlotte? Because I was just wondering if we're going to go the faster way. Oh, 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 hilarious. Hilarious. So then Jen goes to the beach every day, like, like she goes to sleep in the car, the beach is a magnet for Jen, it's just like, we'll be sitting there talking, and I'll say, honey, I want to talk about how much I love you, and she'll go to the beach, out here, see you, and like, take off for the beach, she's at the beach one day, and, and she, you know, she takes her iPod down to the beach, and um, she goes down there, and hangs out, and, and sings, and you can walk up on her, and listen to her worship, and, and laugh at her, and because uh, she can't hear you, because of the, the ocean, and the, the iPod, and she kind of had her iPod in this little backpack, and has her chair down there, and she'd you know set it down and go take off walking, and and walk down the beach, and just and Jen worships through creation in a lot of ways, and that and that's cool because I don't, I pollute creation. Um, so we're sitting there, and and. uh <clears throat> um she she leaves her stuff in her bag and in this chair and goes walking down the beach gets you know good ways down the beach and then sees something else she has to go take a look at I think I think it was a beach whale I don't really remember exactly what it was it may have been Free Willy of some kind so anyway so she she takes off down the beach further to go to go you know see what's happening with Free Willy I guess and gets down there kind of hangs around then decides She's gonna walk back she starts walking back toward her chair and I mean she's like. 100, 200, 300 yards down the beach this is by this time. By the time she's walked all the way back, to, she's walked all the way down, and I was walking all the way back, and she's, I don't know how far she was, but she looked back, and there's her chair, and here's the tide coming in, and uh, just, you know, got all her stuff wet, iPod's dead now, and all that stuff. So it'd become, become like this thing with her that, like, anytime I did something stupid, she'd go, Yeah, we're we going back home through Charlotte. And I'd go, Yeah, I don't know what happened the first time. I think I was listening to my iPod, and I don't even know. Exactly what happened. I'll probably listen to mine on the way back, so I may accidentally go that way again. Isn't that good? So, uh, and so we've been still going at it. Every time she thinks she's got a new good line, she'll go, "Hey, you know, you're going to Charlotte. I'm going to Charlotte this weekend," which is kind of funny because I was a week early. And uh, she's like, "She's going to, hey, you know, at least you know how to get to Charlotte." And I'm saying, "Yeah, I can listen to my iPod the whole way. I don't have to pay attention." Of course, this time I won't pay attention. I'll end, up in, I'll end up in, you know, Columbus so or New York. I don't know, know which. While we're at the beach, we're in this little town called Beaufort. I know you're going, where is this going? Nowhere really, this is just a short sermon I want to talk to you And I already talked about the Longhorns, so, which we all know now we're going to lose to rice this week, right? God mocks me. And you can all laugh at me at that point, but I'll kill you. Um, we're in this little beach town, Beaufort, South Carolina. And I mean, this is like... This, this island and this town are just like, I mean, they define the words antebellum, right? I mean, they're just old school. And you're going, I don't even know what the word antebellum means. It means Beaufort, South Carolina. That's, that's what it means. So <clears throat> it's just old, like, just cool houses. You know what I'm talking about? It was just old school, cool houses, and and everyone we drove by, Jim would be like, I love that house, and I'd, you know, it'd be for sale, and you could like pull up the little sheet, and it'd be like eight million dollars, and I'd say, yeah, I know, I know you like it, and I can tell why, because we could get that house, sell it, and buy 17 more, right, so there's just all these really cool houses, And and all these houses built way before the 1950s, right, all have one thing in common, as a matter of fact, all houses built before the fifties really kind of have one thing in common. Do you know what it is? You, you you may not be able to sit here and go. This is what it is. You know, I'm an architectural student. These are the seventeen things. You know, I don't want to talk to you. You should be doing homework anyway. Um, <laughs> they all have something in common. And if you think old house, picture old house. There's one big feature that you don't see anymore. You know what it is? It's the porch. It's front porch. You know what I'm talking about? That's the coolest. You drive, you're like, I want a porch like that, right? Why is the first question I want to ask you. That could be a home theater, right? That's just wasted space. You look at old houses, and they all have one thing in common, and it's a big front porch. You go drive through some old sections of Knoxville or some some older houses, and now they're trying to, like, redo those. House. They're building new houses with big, huge porches on them, trying to get that old classic style, you know what I mean? But the, but it, it, it's all built around the big front porch. As a matter of fact, you go back and you look at really old houses, you can even tell the whole house is built around the porch. It, it kind of all fits together. With the porch being the main part of the house. You know what the, the main part of today's houses are? The, the TV room. I, I'm serious. Walk into a new house. Go, pay attention. It's all about the main room where you're going to have your TV and, and watch. And, and, and that says something. Now, you, you may not think it does, but it does. Because what a porch is about is about people. And you're sitting on your front porch in your neighborhood. You see, we, we've not, we don't even have front porches anymore. We have patios that are in the back surrounded by wooden fences so nobody can see us, right? I and mean, we don't even sit out in the front anymore on our street where people can see us. We sit in our back with our fences alone. And if you don't think that says something, then you're not paying attention. Because our culture has drifted in just 50 years, which I know is a long time, but not in cultural timelines it's not. And in just a little short time, and not even in 50 years, really in about 15 years, our culture has totally changed. I, I am 34 years old, I know, old, oh, he's oh, old, oh, right? I was in school 15 years ago, I was in college 15 years ago. Let me tell you something. The college campus today is a completely different place because of one thing. You know what it is? Cell phones. Now you're saying, oh, yeah, I need to turn mine off, right? I mean, that's what you're doing right now. I'm going to find somebody one day that has their phone on. I know, and I'm going to get the guys in the tech booth, start calling them just constantly and just watch them panic. That's my favorite thing to do. Uh, Cell phones have changed the college experience. Do you, do you realize this? That the entire experience of college that you heard about growing up, the entire experience of college that your parents had, that people like me had, that people just, think about this, think about this, just five years ago, cell phones were so expensive that you, you paid like 80 bucks for 100 minutes. No nights and weekends. You, you used it if you were dying. You know, that was it five years ago. That's it, five years ago. And now, freshmen come to college and spend more time talking to the people they left than the people they're meeting. What cell phone has done is allowed you to talk to who you want to, when you want to, and shut everybody else out. Am I saying you shouldn't have cell phones? Not in here, no. But I mean, of course not. But look at the college campus. It's changed. When I was in college, there was no internet. We didn't get on chat rooms. We didn't send emails. We didn't do all that stuff. We had to sit around talking to people. It used to be you left home, left your old world, went to a new world, and had to totally learn to navigate it based on your ability to meet new people. It's not that way anymore, is it? And I know that, I'm not saying you should abandon your friends from high school. I'm not saying you should get rid of your old community. What I am saying is that what used to be the great moment of you finding out who you were, of learning how to navigate your way in the world, the college experience has disappeared. And here's another proof of it, is that i watch watched so many of you graduate and have no idea what to do next, where to go, who you are. And it's impossible to learn because what culture and technology have done is allowed us just to get in our own little rooms, seal ourselves off, watch our TVs, cook our steaks, never interact with another person. We are people behind tinted glass, talking on cell phones, waiting for our food to be delivered. And I promise you, you're watching our culture dissolve because of it. That's scary, isn't it? But it's true. As a matter of fact, your generation, this is going to make you mad, but it's never stopped me before, has it? Your generation is the first generation that is less educated than their parents. Do you know that? You're saying, not me, I got a master's. And my mom, she didn't graduate from high school, Right? That's not what we're talking about. You see, what the educational system has taught you to do is regurgitate, not to think. Think of all your tests. What do you do? Memorize, spit it back out. Papers, what do you do? Go look up what other people said. Write it down. Right? And what we're creating is a culture incapable of engaging other people with their own thoughts, with their own ways, and pushing into people and learning to interact with one another and be with one another. And unfortunately for you, Christian, is that the number one command of Jesus Christ flies right in the face of everything that I'm talking about. John 15, 17. This, these things I command you, this I command you, so that you love one another, that you love one another. This is not the first time that he said this. This is a reminder verse. If you want to flip back to to John 13, you can see what he really said. John chapter 13, verse 34 is where this first pops up. John 13, 34 where he says this, 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, here's the thing, students, is that the fundamental command of Jesus Christ, not an arbitrary command, not one of those things that's just kind of out there that we can kind of dismiss as we want to, one of those things we don't have to deal with, one of those things that's a gray area of Scripture, and I know you're not supposed to say that, but there are gray areas. Romans even says so. Romans says, hey, if you want to do this, do it, and if you want to do this, do it. But, what does he say? Whatever you do, do it with thinking of the other person in mind. You see, the fundamental command of Jesus Christ, the fundamentals of Christianity are meant to be lived out in community and one another. You love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. I have a question for you. What are you thinking that people are looking at you as, as being a Christian? What is your scale? Are you thinking if I know all the scripture, then they'll know I'm his disciple? Are you thinking if I know the right arguments, I can prove I'm his disciple? If I can explain superlapsarianism correctly, then I know, then everybody can know I'm a Christian because I have ontological creationism down. Most of you are going, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's good. You don't need to know. This is what Jesus says. And since he's Christ and the whole thing's called Christian, he gets to kind of make up the rules. And this is what he says. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. You see, the church has starting to say it's other things. Not just our flawed images of what we're supposed to look like. The church has started to say it's other things. It started to say, you know what? People will know you're a Christian if you worship right. People will know you're a Christian if, you, if, if they walk into the room and they can feel the presence of God when you're worshiping. Then people know you're a Christian. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're doing my disciples. Ready? That you love one another. That you love one another. You know, C.S. Lewis was a smart guy, right? I and mean, C.S. Lewis was you know, the man in the last century. He wrote a book, and everything he wrote in that book was everything that I started out this talk with. And a phenomenon he called men without chests. He didn't mean physically, he meant emotionally. That the culture, that the world was creating people that had no ability to care deeply about anything. And I bet if I sat down and could really talk with a lot of you, I mean, if we could really sit down and really talk, the truth of you is not that you don't want to believe, it's not that you don't understand the things the Bible says, it's not that you don't, it's that you want something to be passionate about. You want to throw yourself into something with everything there is in you. You want something that consumes you. You want something that gives your life purpose and meaning, and the truth is that you're just scared you're going to find out that whatever you put all your chips on is wrong. Because we grow up putting our chips in other pots. We think, maybe if I'm athletic enough, if I'm pretty enough, if I'm smart enough, if I do these things right, then that's going to give me that purpose. And what you're beginning to see is a culture where men are incapable of engaging true masculinity because everything's been stripped away from them. And we read things like wild at heart and go, oh man, yeah, that's what it is. I've got something now I can be passionate about. And the truth is not that there's some little formula John Eldredge found. It's that we don't have anything to be passionate about. I mean, ladies, I'm watching a generation that has just kind of put their hope in one of two things. Either a husband that they can be passionate about or their firstborn child that they can be passionate about. A generation of mothers that said, you know what, that's what's going to give me that thing to be passionate about, my child. And I'm watching a generation of children be destroyed because their mother is trying to receive her emotional needs from them. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster, y'all. Are you seeing this? I know it's scary. It's not exactly something you want to give up your Monday night to come here and talk about. The simple truth is that the culture, our education system, our technology, our sin habits, everything is pushing us away from the very core of what Jesus wants for us. This is how all people will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. There's some interesting things we can take from these verses And some of them are going to fly right in the face of almost everything you've ever learned in the church. First thing is this. This is how all men will know you are my disciples. If you love them. Is that what it says? Is that what it said? What's it say? If you love one Another. It's spoken in the upper room discourse, which means it's Jesus and the disciples. That's it. There's nobody else. A lot of times, when you see some of the stuff Jesus said, He's talking to Peter, but there's 300 people all around him. This is just Jesus and those 12 guys. That you love one another. This verse has become to mean, and the way we teach it, everybody is, you got to love everybody. And that's how you need to evaluate yourself. You need to love everybody you meet. That is not what this verse teaches. What it says is that you love one another, meaning fellow Christians. Read Acts 1 through 6 this week. And read how it says, and all the believers were of one accord, and they shared with each other as any had need, and they sold everything, and everyone took as they needed. He's not talking about them going, all right, let's sell everything so all the people of Jerusalem can come take our stuff. And, it says, and the Lord was adding to their number daily. You see, the church is to be a community of people that love each other so much, the unbeliever walks in and goes, This place is different from everywhere else I have ever been. Because there's nothing else on earth, no other institution, no other thing that binds people together like the church can, like the knowledge of Jesus Christ, like the Holy Spirit planted into our hearts can. You can go to a UT football game, all right? I, there are I, there are no more passionate people about their team than Tennessee ball fans, okay? I've been everywhere. I've seen it all. And then nobody. It's not even close, okay? Now, I know what you're saying. Well, my team is. Okay, no, they're not. Be quiet and get out of here before you die okay i'm trying to help you i'm trying to save your life all right and you can go to those games and watch two vol fans fight each other there's a lot of jack daniels involved in that process however you can watch these people who are supposed to be bound together by a common cause let's not beat up each other let's beat up the guy in red right no no because even that, even something that they would both sit down and agree on every point. You like the false? Love the balls; You like the tea? Love the tea. You like smoky? I've got six smokies. <laughs> Still, it doesn't bind them together. I mean, we can watch people, and in, in, in many of you, even those in your own family, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, I don't know circumstances have placed you in a place where even you can't get together. Church is not to be that. Church is to be a place where love one another. Read the epistles. That's all the New Testament books basically, right? Read them where it says love one another, be together, uh, extol one another, build one another up, spur one another to good deeds. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. And basically what Paul, what Peter, what John keeps saying to people is this. The fundamental core of what the world needs to see is a people who love each other. Who sit there and say, you know what? I found out about you some things and I need to love you through these things. You need help. You need this. You need material goods. You need my emotional support. You need these things and I love you because I love Christ. That's why. Why? And so the world sees that and says, there's nothing that compares to that. There's not a miracle that can happen that can compare to that. I know you're thinking, well, if all of a sudden their dead loved ones got out of the grave, they'd believe. No, they wouldn't. It's the lesson of Lazarus. Read the scriptures. Learn from the scriptures. Miracles do not change people's hearts. Look at Exodus Look at Elijah, look at Jesus. Three times in the Bible were periods of great miracles and they never affected people's hearts. It was love. When they watched Jesus' love, they were radically affected. You can go and look at some of the first writings about Christians. Roman scholars and historians who wrote about them. And as they were putting them to death in the arenas, as they were letting uh, beasts eat them and kill them, as Nero tied up uh, Christians in oiled sacks and burned them alive as torches, the Romans historians would write, Oh, but they love one another. Is that true today? Hebrews uh, teaches us in, in chapter 10. It says, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And so I want to ask you tonight, who are you loving in the church? Who is loving you in the church? Where are you going? Where are you being spoken into? Where are you being sharpened? Where are people who know you? Where are you meeting with them? We're to be people of love. And to be people of love, one of the first things we have to do is talk about what love is, and we have to talk about what love isn't. We got to talk about what love is, and we have to talk about what love isn't. You see, the first thing love is not, love is not free acceptance some of the real popular things you'll hear from the world today and what a lot of popular things you'll hear from the mouths of people who aren't really thinking through what they're saying is this i want someone who loves me for me i want to be loved for who i am you ever said that is that your definition of love I know probably 90% of us in this room, that's our definition of love. It was my definition of love for years. It was my definition of love when I got married. I want somebody who loves me for me. I want someone who loves, I can be who I am, and they love me. But what is the fundamental teaching of Scripture? Man, humanity is sinful. Fallen needs to be redeemed needs to be changed into what? The reflection of Christ. Romans 8, the great promises say that God is conforming us to the image of his son. Now consider this, if God in his love for us is conforming us to the image of his son, then what is love? Being conformed into the image of his son and conforming someone else to the image of his son. You see, if that's what God did to show us his love, rescue us from who we were, and change us into who we need to be, then the best kind of love that we could show somebody is the same thing. And you have to be real careful. Because first thing it's not is this. Love is not your definition of who someone needs to be. I mean, I watch all the time, you watch one person in a relationship dominate the other one with expectations of who they're supposed to be. And what my mind says you're to be, that's what you need to be, or I'll leave you. Right? See, love is not free acceptance. Love is not what the world says it is, and you can watch all the MTV shows, and you can watch all the love shows on any channel, They're gonna, you're going to hear that phrase, I want someone who loves me for me, if he loved you, he would let you be who you are, if you would just let me be who I am, that's love, it's the very core argument of, of many of the social agendas we hear today, homosexual marriage, those things, let me be who I am, love me for who I am, but that's not how God loved us, it's not how Christ loved us, and if we say that is what love is, let me tell you something, and please hear me, you are in a collision course with pain if your definition of being loved is someone to love you for who you are you are in a collision course with pain because God doesn't love that way and God is love the most loving thing we can be and what love is is being conformed into the image of Christ hear me say this to you if you want someone to love you for who you are and, and, and never say anything that's gonna challenge you, never, never act, call you on your mistakes, you don't wanna be loved. You wanna be worshiped. And God has a big problem with idols. He tears them down. I'm warning you. Besides that, Christian, you have a deeper view of love. Love you have something deeper inside of you and you know the counterfeit. And now I'm gonna to talk to a lot of you who are in relationships right now. Some of you are in relationships who are trying to love somebody for who they are or trying to be loved for who you are. You're beginning to feel the counter of it. You're beginning to feel how it's wrong, how it's not working out. And, and you'll play the game for a while and you'll try to figure out how do we fix this? Maybe what we need to do is commit more. Maybe what I need to do is get engaged and get married. And then that's gonna be what's gonna fix it. That. That's what my problem is. I haven't committed or, or maybe you've gone the wrong way and started attaching it to physical intimacy and said if we could be physically intimate, then that would change what what I'm feeling, but the truth is, is that you've got a counterfeit product, and you're trying to put a counterfeit product into a hole that only takes the real stuff. I, mean, I want you to imagine if Michael Jordan, in his prime, went back and played basketball at North Carolina. I mean, in his prime of dominating the NBA, he goes back to North Carolina and plays. Would he dominate? Yeah. Even more so, right? But I guarantee you, he would be bored eventually because he's been higher. He's seen deeper, he's seen harder, he's seen more challenging. And so have you. If you're in Christ here, the Holy Spirit is in your heart saying, I love you. God loves you. He wants to hold you and protect you. And he's going to, but he's not gonna let you just sit down and do nothing. He's gonna sit there and work on you and teach you and pull you and challenge you. And that is love. And if you begin to sell out for counterfeit love because of a relationship, I assure you, boredom and pain are your destiny, not something to watch out for, your destiny, because there's only one true love. What love is, is truth. Love is truth, and it's truth spoken in love. I mean, there's a lot of things I could go to Jen and say right now that would be true. I don't know if they'd be love. And there are infinitely more things Jane could come say to me that would be true and would be love. And she needs to come say them right now in the mic. I'm just kidding. She's like going, all right, iPod storyteller, right? You know. God's love for us is our model. I want you to consider this. Romans. The book of theology, right? I mean, Paul's deep look into the philosophy of Christianity, right? Romans one: Man is sinful. Romans two: Gentile, you are condemned. Romans two and a half to three and a half: Jew, you are condemned. Romans three and a half on the gospel of Jesus Christ: Faith, grace, blood. Romans four: Faith. Romans 5, how should we live? Romans 6, shall sin continue? Romans 7, when I struggle with sin? Romans 8, the great promises. Romans 9 through 11, we're not talking about. You have to know the Bible to get that one. It's about predestination, election, Israel. I mean, deep philosophy, right? And Paul uses one real world example. Do you know what it is? Marriage. That's it. The only real world example in the whole book of Romans is marriage. And when Paul, when John, when Peter write about the grand things of heaven, they begin to call Jesus the groom and the church the bride. You see, marriage is not about you and me finding somebody that we get to laugh with and be with and gets to hug us, Right? I mean, marriage is a great thing that brings great comfort, but if marriage, if your idea of marriage is my comfort, my pleasure, my comfort, my pleasure, then you do not understand what marriage is, you don't understand what God has done, and you don't see the bigger picture. Because what marriage is, is this. Two things that are different coming together and being bound together forever. By love. ultimate litmus test of community and i'm here to tell you if you're walking out your christian life if you're walking with christ thinking i'm doing fine and i don't need a small group and i don't need a sunday school class and i don't need a community group i can go to crossroad i can go to church on sundays and i'm fine you are someone who got married and decided to live in a different house. I mean, jen That's me and Jen walking down the aisle saying our vows. I do, I do. I'll see you in a week or so. Yeah, all right, later. Give me coffee, you get bored. Is that your idea of marriage? I mean, it ain't gonna last long. And I'm telling you right now, many, Many of us, our biggest problems with Christianity is not struggling with sin, although we all do. It's not knowing enough scripture, although we all don't. It's not knowing enough theology, although we all don't. It's that we're not pushing into each other. And we're not letting people see in our patios and behind our fences. And the simple truth is this. You want to grow in Christ. The fastest way is to get somebody else who's in Christ to grab your hand and walk with you. This is how you'll know you love one another. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we just come before you now. As we Stop to evaluate the things that we've invested our hearts in. I pray that you give us insight into our hearts. That you give us glimpses of your purposes for us. And that we see beyond emotion and we see beyond uh, just the, the ideas of feeling good about us into the deep places you've called us to community pushing in as iron sharpens iron so one person sharpens another that's not in proverbs by mistake it's the model jesus stayed here sharpened 12 guys and then said you 12 guys go sharpen 12 others and that the the truth is That every one of us here that I know of is here because a guy named Paul poured into a guy named Timothy. A guy named Paul poured into some Gentile. And here I am. Father, let us see so much beyond our own comfort. Let us not forget that we are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those who rejoice that these are where the real spiritual gifts are. To see your hand on the heart of another.